And now uh, we will read this morning's text for the sermon. If Please stand if you are able. The sermon is from Mark chapter 2, the first 12 verses. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is God's word. Please keep those Bibles open and let's pray as we look at this familiar text. Lord, what a joy to open your word and to know that every time this book is open, you are speaking. What a grace that you give us your spirit so that we can hear. And so that's our prayer uh, this morning as every time we open this book, that we would have ears to hear by the power of your Spirit, eyes to see you, and hearts changed by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. With the internet today, uh, all of a sudden, everybody has become an expert on everything. Uh, There are forums where you can go to diagnose that weird sound that your car is making. Uh, There are fact-checking websites where you can kind of keep up on the political rhetoric of the day. But perhaps the biggest blessing and curse is the vast availability of medical information on the interwebs today. Uh, All of a sudden, we're all armchair doctors, uh, which, you know, can be a blessing in that it can save you from a needless trip to the doctor or help you stop freaking out about some symptom you have, but it's also a curse because you can now know the symptom of every single ailment out there. And if you have even a hint of hypochondria, that's not a good thing, but even more dangerous is that it's easy to think based on a little Googling, that we have figured out exactly 
what we need and therefore how to treat it, not realizing that there's a huge difference between comparing my symptoms with a blog and a doctor doing an x-ray or CT or an MRI to actually look inside and see. I mean, imagine showing up at the ER with a with a severe headache, having concluded based on my WebMD search that I have a tumor. And then the doctor, instead of doing an MRI, just goes with it and opens me up to try and take it out, only to discover it wasn't a tumor, it was sinuses. I mean, how foolish would that be, right? We wouldn't expect something like that. And, and if that had happened, not only would the doctor not have actually addressed the real problem. He would have created multiple new problems. We, without looking inside, without using that technology to see inside what's really going on, that doctor would be ill-equipped to actually be helpful. Well, in a similar way, loving someone well requires an intimate knowledge of that person. Uh, If you don't know who they are, or what's really going on, it's hard to come alongside and be of help. And as we consider this morning the heart of Jesus revealed in the Gospels, what we'll see is that Jesus is able to love us perfectly because he knows us intimately and thoroughly. He can see inside us to know exactly what's going on and the best way to meet our need to help. Now, the story uh, before us is a pretty familiar one. If you have spent much time in the New Testament, it picks up uh, just after the story we looked at two weeks ago, where Jesus healed the leper. This is still early in his ministry. Uh, we're, We're barely out of the gate, but his reputation has been growing such that more and more people are now coming to Jesus, looking to hear from him, and looking to be healed by him. And so the scene picks up inside a house in Capernaum, in the region of Galilee, where Jesus is now living, and it is a packed house. It's crowded. Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And Jesus was preaching the word to them. But even though it's completely crowded, there are still more people who are trying to come. In particular, four men carrying a paralyzed man, trying to get this man through the crowd to Jesus that he might be healed. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the man lay. Now, we read those lines, and we don't necessarily think a lot about them because this, uh, for many of us, is such a familiar and iconic story. If you grew up in church, you remember the flannel graph guy being let down. I mean, it's just one of the classic stories of the New Testament. But think about what it would have been like to be in that room that day. I mean, there's, there's Jesus preaching And all of a sudden, there's this noise up above, you know, and and then little lines of dust start falling, and pretty soon, chunks of debris, and then daylight breaks through, and and these men are, are, you know, 
peeling back the roof, and as the hole gets bigger, a body comes down. I mean, that's not a typical meeting, okay? If, if, if uh, something like that happened right now, I guarantee nobody would be listening to me. We would all be staring at that. The pastor's really outdone himself with the sermon illustration this morning. I wonder if he talked to the deacons first about that. I mean, it's a chaotic situation. This is not normal for, you know, a, a, a home Bible study. And imagine all of the different things going through people's heads as that scene unfolded. I mean, there, perhaps there were some who were kind of outraged at the, at the reckless interruption or the blatant disregard for private property to just peel the roof open. Uh, perhaps some were moved by the loyalty of these friends, that they would stop at nothing to get their friend to Jesus. Uh, certainly some of them had to have looked on that paralyzed man with compassion. I mean, you, you, you think about that. Being unable to walk meant he was unable to work, and that meant he was completely dependent on others. I mean, there, was no, there were no wheelchairs, there was no social security. Either you were set down at the gate to beg all day and that was your livelihood, or in the rare uh, occasion that you had a support system, you were completely dependent on your friends and family. It was a desperate situation. And so no doubt when the dust cleared and people saw a paralyzed man, some of those hearts were, were, would be moved to compassion. This man needs healing. But what did Jesus see? What did Jesus see? And all of that chaos and distraction. Verse 5. He saw their faith. He saw their faith. And what do you expect him to do once he sees their faith? You expect him to heal the man, right? To tell him to get up, take his bed, and go home. That's what the guy wants. That's what he clearly needs. But what does Jesus say? And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are are forgiven. Why would Jesus do that? I mean, when, when, why when, when someone is so broken and desperate and, and comes looking for a miracle to walk again, and when Jesus has the power to do it, why would he tell him instead, your sins are forgiven? That doesn't really make sense to us. That's not what how we would have written the story. Uh, imagine even the disappointment for the friends and the man. I mean, they had a goal in mind to get this man to Jesus. It feels a bit like ordering a steak dinner and, and getting an empty plate with a little garnish on the side. I mean, that's pretty there, uh, but I'm not sure how that's going to fill me up and address the need, fill meet the hunger. It's a nice bonus to be forgiven of sins. That's great, but what am I supposed to do with that laying here? It, can, it, it kind of feels cold and insensitive, like Jesus really missed an opportunity here. Why would he see faith and pronounce forgiveness instead of healing? 
hold on to that question. And let's keep looking at the story because there were other people in the room who were also somewhat taken aback by Jesus' actions. Not because he didn't heal the man like they expected, but because he had the audacity to pronounce the forgiveness of sins. Verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I mean, just who does Jesus think he is to pronounce the forgiveness of sins over this man? Only God can do that. I mean, as he says in passages like Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. So in pronouncing this man forgiven of his sins with no sacrifice, no priest, no temple, Jesus is exercising an authority that only God has the right to exercise. And so from the perspective of the scribes, he's blaspheming. He is slandering God by making himself equal with him. And of course, if Jesus was mere man, the scribes would be absolutely right to be outraged. But Jesus is no mere man. He is both fully God and fully human. And as such, he alone is qualified and authorized to forgive sins on earth. And so look at what he does next. First, he exposes publicly what the scribes were thinking in private, which is kind of the first tip of the hat that they're not dealing with a mere mortal, right? Verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? That had to get their attention. Then second, he challenges their logic in verse 9. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? You know, If they're waiting around for Jesus to... Uh, heal the guy as some proof of his authority, they've kind of missed the point. Jesus has already accomplished the more difficult thing, forgiving sins. Only God can do that. But because they still don't get it, Jesus says, fine, I'll, I'll play. And he proves his authority to forgive sins by accomplishing the easier task as well. Verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And that's a scene to imagine as well, right? And and he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and he went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. It's a beautiful ending to a classic story. But what do we do with Jesus' strange activity? Why does Jesus see faith and pronounce forgiveness and then see unbelief 
and pronounce healing. And we would expect the reverse, right? That, that he would announce healing to the paralyzed man since that's what he wanted and that he would announce his authority to forgive sins to the scribes since that's what they were questioning. But Jesus shows his love in unexpected ways because he knows things that we don't know. Like the CT or the MRI that can look inside and see what's really going on, what's really wrong. Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, in the flesh, knows us intimately and exhaustively, everything about us, so that his love is able to penetrate through our wants and our expectations and meet us where we need it most. In a word, his love is omniscient. It's omniscient. Now, what does omniscient mean? That's not a word that you used this week in conversation, probably. Um, it's a word that simply means all-knowing. He is all-knowing. We usually use that word in classic theology when we describe God, who the three omnis. He's omnipresent, he's omnipotent, and he's omniscient. Omnipresent, he's everywhere at the same time. Omnipotent, he's all-powerful. He can do anything. And omniscient, He's all-knowing. He knows everything. And so Jesus, with respect to his divinity, is omniscient. He knows everything about us. Not just what we say or do, but what we think and what we feel. As Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down... And when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. That's amazing. And Hebrews four twelve through 13 puts it this way. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creatures hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Jesus is omniscient, all-knowing. So what does he do? with that intimate and exhaustive knowledge of us. What do we do when we get privileged information about someone that's potentially damaging? I mean, the human impulse is try to leverage that for some sort of personal gain. You know, to expect the other person to give us something or do something for us in order to you know, keep us silent, or just to then parade it out there so everybody knows and that person looks bad and we look better. That's our impulse. In fact, many of us are so afraid of what other people will do if they see who we really are that we are really good at putting on a face, projecting an image, hiding our true selves for fear of rejection or worse. We, we put on a mask 
It's a deeply sad dilemma because on the one hand, we desperately want to be known. But on the other hand, we're desperately afraid of what that might cost us. But Jesus knows. He sees. Whether we realize it or not, there's nothing in our life hidden from his sight. So what does he do with that intimate and thorough knowledge? He uses it to perfect his love for us. Think about that. He uses his knowledge to love us in exactly the way we need it. Now, there are two shocking things there. First, Jesus knows us intimately and exhaustively, and he still loves us. That's pretty amazing, right? Everything we feel we have to hide from everyone else, Jesus sees that, and he still responds in love. That, my friends, is called grace. We are receiving something amazing when we actually deserve something terrible. For Jesus to see our sin and respond with love is nothing short of grace. But second, that he actually uses his omniscience to perfect his love, to to penetrate our wants and our expectations and meet us where we need it most. That is amazing. But that's what we see in our story. If you look again at at the story of the paralytic, amid all of the the chaos of people digging through a roof and and amid the, the loyalty of the friends and the desperation of the paralyzed man, when Jesus looks at him, what does he see? He saw their faith. Who can actually do that? How do you see someone's faith? I mean, we could see evidence of somebody's faith in how they live or what they do. But none of us can actually see into the heart of each other to know if that faith is genuine. Jesus can. He can. And when he looks into the hearts and sees their faith, he knows exactly how to love the paralyzed man well. By pronouncing the forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus knew what this man needed most was not the ability to walk. But a reconciled relationship with God. To be forgiven of his sins. Which again, that's shocking for us to think about. Because the obvious need right in front, that's healing, right? But that's our WebMD self-diagnosis. Jesus knows his heart and gives what he knows is best. After all, which is worse? To be dependent on others for the rest of your earthly life? Or to be separated from God for all of eternity because of your sin? Jesus knows what's best. He knows the heart. And so he meets the greater need, the forgiveness of sins. And and we need to understand that this is true for all of us. That's not just the paralyzed man's greatest need. That's all of our greatest need. There are so many ways that this broken world shows itself in our life. Um, And and we long for all of that to be dealt with. And, And when Christ returns, it will be. But whatever earthly trouble that we face, our greatest need as humans is the forgiveness of sins. 
We talked a little bit about this last week when we looked at John 3, how sin is rebellion against God. It makes us enemies of God and brings us under his just, righteous condemnation. It, it separates us from the source of life and beauty and truth and goodness and peace and meaning because it separates us from God himself. It destroys our relationships on earth. It corrupts our hearts. It is ugly and evil. And so our greatest need is for that sin to be dealt with, for it to be forgiven, to be made clean and new and reconciled to God. And that's what God offers through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he came to do. Again, from last week, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So Jesus uses his omniscience to perfect his love for the paralytic. He saw faith and pronounced forgiveness of sins. He also uses his omniscience to perfect his love for the scribes, too. Because even though he's getting after them, He's doing that out of love. He's doing that out of love. So look again at the second part of our story, starting in verse 6. Notice how the scribes never verbalized their frustration about Jesus. They questioned him in their hearts. But again, look at verse 8. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned him thus within themselves said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? I mean, just as Jesus can see faith in the heart of the paralyzed man and his friends, so he can hear unbelief in the hearts of the scribes. And that's why he pronounces healing in the second half of the story. Because what the scribes needed in their unbelief was evidence that Jesus really does have authority to forgive sins. And he is uniquely qualified to do this. Because only Jesus can stand in our place as our substitute, offering his life of perfect obedience in place of our life of idolatry and brokenness and sin and receiving in himself the punishment that we deserve. Jesus dealt decisively with our sin. If you are a Christian, your greatest problem in life has been decisively dealt with your greatest need in this world has been graciously provided already that's amazing what the scribes needed most was to come to grips with jesus's authority to forgive and what some of us need here is to come to grips with that same thing, that that sin really is sinful, but God's grace really is sufficient to deal with that sin because the blood of Christ really is enough. We need to come to grips with that in faith. In, In Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. God knew what he was doing in the cross. 
Jesus loves us with an omniscient love. So what does that mean for us experiencing the love of Christ today? And we see how he applied that knowledge to loving the paralyzed man and the scribes. What does that mean for us today? And what does that mean for how we then reflect the love of Christ in how we love others? I want us all to wrestle with a reality. Do you realize that Jesus knows you intimately and exhaustively and therefore knows how to love you in exactly the way you need to be loved? Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that? That means that we might not always understand or like the way that he's loving us. I mean, sometimes we're shocked when we go to the doctor thinking we've figured ourselves out and the doctor tells us, no, it's something different and we need to do this instead. Do we realize that that Jesus loves us because of his intimate knowledge and exhaustive knowledge of us? There may be times where we scratch our heads or even shake our fists at him for not dealing with us in the way we thought he ought to, for leaving us in our trial or our trouble, in our pain or frustration. And and no one is saying that that's easy or no one's telling you not to cry out for deliverance or or to, to call to the Lord how long. We have lament in the Bible for a reason. But one thing we can be sure of is that we're not in our situation because Jesus is uninformed. He just doesn't quite know what he's doing. He doesn't express his love through trial and error. Well, let's try it. Oh, that didn't work out. No, he doesn't cut first and look second. He knows what he's doing. He knows you intimately and exhaustively. And therefore, even when we can't see it, His love is able to penetrate our wants and our expectations and meet us where we truly need it most. I mean, yeah, it hurts sometimes. But if you think about it, why would you ever allow a doctor to cut open your stomach and pull an organ out? Because you trust that he can see something you can't see. And he knows something you don't know. It takes trust. So it is with the omniscient love of Christ. It takes trust. And we need to think about how we reflect Christ's love as well with respect to his omniscience. I mean, to love someone well requires an intimate knowledge of that person. If you don't know who they are or what they're really going through, it's really hard to come alongside them in a, in a fruitful way. But of course, we are not Jesus. None of us are omniscient. We can't see into people's hearts and minds to know them. Uh, we will not fully know someone 
the way that Jesus fully knows us. But one thing we can do as we seek to reflect his love, one thing we can do, we can listen. We can listen. We can make a genuine effort to get to know that person as much as is possible to ask meaningful questions of one another, to build that intimate knowledge. One of the ways that we do this in the um, lead pastor cohort that I've been participating in in the last two years was when we catch up, we start by asking each other two questions. What are you carrying that you want to share so that we can celebrate with you? And what are you carrying right now that, that you want to share that we can grieve with you? Like what's, what's heaviest in your heart right now in terms of celebration and in terms of grief? And that's where we start our conversation. Um, and, it, and it just it helps us get below the surface to what's really burdening our hearts. And there's lots of different ways you can do that. But am I, do I take the time to listen or do I simply assume I already know and I'm just waiting to talk? There's a big difference between listening and waiting to talk. We need to know each other truly and intimately in order to love each other well. The more we listen, the more we focus on knowing others, the more we will get to know what's going on in someone else's life and the better equipped our love for them will be. Our, our love for each other will never be omniscient, but it can be informed. It can be informed. That's a goal. That's the goal. And, and the other thing to keep in mind in, in how we love each other is when we do run into that wall where our knowledge is limited, whether because they just can't go there or we just can't know, there is someone who does know them intimately. And there's someone we can point them to who does know them fully and who still loves them and applies that knowledge to love them perfectly. We can point them to Jesus, even if we can't fully know them. Only someone with omniscient love can, can look at the chaos of the situation and actions of the paralytic and his friends and, and not simply see desperation but faith. Only someone with omniscient love can, can look at the paralyzed man himself and see that his greatest need is not simply to walk, but the forgiveness of sins. Only someone with omniscient love can perceive the unspoken criticisms and questions in the hearts of the scribes. Only someone with omniscient love can address those criticisms, and vindicate his authority to forgive sins by healing the paralyzed man. Jesus loves us with an omniscient love, an all-knowing love. And so may we resist the temptation to think that because things aren't going the way I thought they should, he must be a novice. May we trust that he knows us better than we know ourselves. May we trust Him not merely for what we want or think we need, but that He knows us well enough to love us perfectly in every moment, in every situation, and to meet us where we truly need it most. 
May we see and experience and rest in and even rejoice in the omniscient love of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, how we need your love. How we need your love applied to us in just the right way. And Lord, we confess that is hard to open our hands and trust you. Because it means we're not in control. But Lord, thank you that the one who's in control is the one who actually has the power and wisdom to accomplish what needs to be done. And that's you. So Lord, would you grow our hearts in faith and patience? Would you help us to marvel over the way that you love us perfectly, even when we don't expect it to go the way that it does. May we marvel at your wisdom and your love, and may we treasure you more deeply as a result. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.